0: Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I am your host, Zach Bitter. Today, we are going to do a solo episode. So I have some questions that have come into me over the last couple of weeks that we're going to go over. I like to call them kind of question answer or topic-based type episodes. So for Today's episode, we have a question about time-restricted feeding, and is there a right or wrong way to go about that when it comes to endurance training or just training in general, I suppose. So maybe the extra spin on it would be not just time-restricted feeding, but time-restricted feeding in the context of exercise or performance being kind of at least- a primary driver in your decision making process around foods and the way you kind of set up your day and lifestyle uh, next is thoughts on carnivore diet plus fruit and honey versus like a strict carnivore diet uh, yeah so this will be an interesting one to go through I've got some some thoughts on this one and then keto for two months and endurance is suffering what should I do is the three kind of topics or questions that we're going to go over today so, That's what we have on, on the schedule. If you're interested in having a question or a topic addressed in one of these episodes, feel free to reach out to me. You can send me an email at HPOPodcast at gmail.com or reach out to me on one of my social media platforms. You can find me on Instagram at Zach Bitter, Twitter at ZBitter, Facebook at ZBitter Endurance uh, and uh, Strava is just searching my name are kind of the ones that I'll be, be on. Quickest is going to be probably email. Uh, The other ones I'll usually get to eventually, but sometimes take a little more time, but feel free to send those over, drop them in comments on posts and things like that too. If you have questions, happy to give you uh, whatever advice, if I have any (laughs) on specific topics that you're interested in. So let's get into today's questions. So the first one has to do with the time-restricted feeding, and is there a right way to go about it? when you are training for a specific event. So for those who are curious or unaware, time-restricted feeding is essentially just a practice where you limit your eating window to a certain framework. Now, there is a fairly wide range of ways that this type of uh, eating structure is done. You you see it all the way from typically like a 16-hour off, 8-hour on, and you see it as tight as 20 hours off, four hours on. And I've even seen some where this would be more kind of like a one meal a day or OMAD structure where it's like essentially 23 hours off one hour feeding. Either way, what you're doing is you're trying to limit the amount of time in which you grant yourself access to, to, to eating essentially. So I see this, the, the big advantage of this type of structure is if you find yourself as a person who is trying to lose some weight and has a really hard time like to stop eating once you get started or you find that without any structure you're going to just kind of be snacking and nibbling on things throughout the course of the day and this particular type of structure is going to put you in a position where it's just very clear of like on or off and then when you're on you might just be a little more deliberate in terms of what you're actually trying to eat because you're in a time frame in which that is the expectation versus you know having random snacks and things just pop up and, and grab for them. So it kind of just adds a little bit it's like a rule, so to speak. So generally speaking, I think time restricted feeding structures ultimately end up lowering the person's energy intake as uh, you know the mo- most of the time. So the big question here is, do you actually want to lower your energy intake? And if the question is no, then you want to be much more careful and maybe much more deliberate about doing this type of stuff. So, my biggest fear with time restricted feeding or intermittent fasting when it comes to endurance training is you have these scenarios where there are going to be parts during the training phase where you're going to have a big energy output, especially on days where you're doing like long runs, on days where you're doing like maybe a little more heavy workouts, quality sessions, and things like that. And it just becomes fairly difficult to maybe get enough in during that window. If that is you, I would be much more mindful about how you implement it. Uh, If you're going to, I would say maybe select days during the week where you have like a recovery day or a very easy day where you're going to be doing very low intensity, lower volume type stuff. Your energy demand is going to be lower. You're just going to be much more likely to be able to make up your energy intake for that day. Your energy deficit for that day with an intake in a sm- smaller window. Uh, another example of when this would maybe be something I would be kind of cautious around would be if you have a scenario where you're looking to add muscle or gain gain muscle. So there are what I like to call getting the right amount of protein is sort of a two step process, and the first step is going to be the big win. The second step is going to be still a win, but a little bit smaller. So when it comes to protein, getting the right amount of quality protein is going to be the key here. So if you are say targeting hundred to 150 grams of protein per day, and you are able to get that routinely with your time restricted feeding window, you're still going to get the majority of the gains from hitting that, uh, that, that number of protein that you're targeting. What you might miss out on is some windows of protein muscle synthesis. So there is research to show that if you do have boluses of protein spaced out throughout the day versus all in one or all in two settings, you might be able to improve your body's protein muscle synthesis by a bit. So I think the current literature would suggest around four hours between sessions and hitting 30 plus grams of protein per session. So let's say you have a structure where your time-restricted feeding window gives you two meals per day. You might hit two of those uh, protein muscle synthesis triggers by eating the protein you have with those meals, but you might leave one or two on the table. And I believe The research also indicates optimal protein muscle synthesis comes at three to four of these kind of pingings per 24 hour time period. So this is likely going to be a much bigger variable to consider if you are looking to add muscle, get stronger, or if you're in like a real heavy key kind of phase of your training where you want to make sure you're bouncing back as quickly as possible and able to get out and, and increase your training load with another session sooner rather than later. Uh, where I think time restricted feeding can also possibly have some application with endurance athletes is fat oxidation rates. So I did actually did a podcast. This is a while ago with, uh, Alan cousins, and he has an exercise lab over in Boulder, Colorado. And he's talked about this a fair bit where he'll have athletes come in who are very structured, very specific about what they're doing, and they'll hook them up to a metabolic cart and they'll are, what'll show up is their fat oxidation rates are lower than what they want them to be in order to be able to defend muscle glycogen on race day. So they get the numbers and a race intensity is driving a high enough demand for carbohydrate to where it's not very feasible for them to be able to consume that and defend that glycogen during the race itself. So they're kind of saddled with this, this obligation to either find out a way to eat more during the race itself or improve their fat oxidation rates so that their race intensity isn't quite as carbohydrate dependent. And Alan said that he has had athletes come through his lab where they don't actually reduce the carbohydrate intake of this person uh, from a total amount per day, but rather they just reposition it. So they may like skew the majority or all their carbohydrates into the second half of the day and give themselves a much longer ramp where their body's being asked to have higher fat oxidation rates. And they, and Alan has seen movement on their fat oxidation rates just by that, not even reducing their carbohydrate intake. So I could see time-restricted feeding kind of serving a similar purpose, where by the nature of not eating for say 16 hours and during a 24-hour period of time, you're just gonna be asking your body to depend a little more on fat than you would if you were eating and spacing those, those meals out. So that could be another application. If you have poor fat oxidation rates, you're not really too keen on lowering your carbohydrate intake. This may be a solution that would be be applicable in terms of moving the needle on that. If, if that's what you're looking to do. All right. Next question is thoughts on carnivore plus fruit, honey versus strict carnivore. So this one's gotten a little more popular. I would say in the last year or so where I think we saw like a big burst into the carnivore way of eating a few years ago, and it got popular enough where a lot of people are just like, I'm going to try it out. Some people stuck with it. Some people did it for a little bit of time, decided it wasn't for them. Some people did it for a limited amount of time, fixed whatever issues they were having digestively, and then gradually reintroduced other foods and found out what works well and what doesn't for them. And you know, other people stayed pretty regimental to it because when they would deviate from it, they would see symptoms and things kind of come back that they had kind of clear up from a digestive standpoint with, uh, with this way of eating. So the big hurdle that I sort of predicted, I think when this first got popular was that there's going to be folks, there's going to be a population where they're doing enough work that taps into their muscle glycogen, in a significant enough manner where the process of things like gluconeogenesis or your body converting proteins and fats into glycogen is just going to be too slow relative to the amount of moderate to high intensity work being done. So you have this scenario where you kind of have this like downward sloping staircase scenario of muscle glycogen, where you might feel fine for a few days, but then you hit this point where your body's like all right, we're going to defend what's left here. And we're going to do that by making every workout you try to do feel miserable if you cross over into even a moderate intensity. So this is where I assumed people would start to begin to experiment with a little more carbohydrate. And, uh, the carnivore community leaned heavily towards first honey, because it was sort of seen as an animal product, which I can appreciate to some degree. I mean, it comes from a bee, So it's kind of similar to, I guess, like an egg or something like that, or milk, but uh pure carbohydrate in this case as an option. And then eventually uh, things like fruit got reintroduced, mostly just because I think fruit was viewed by that community as something that's just going to be a lot less likely to cause digestive issues, which I think is the big driver of when this particular way of eating works is when people have dealt with this really terrible digestion. and some of the you know aftermath of that has bled into other areas and symptoms and things like that. So they found out, Hey, I can eat primarily animal based, but then if I introduce some fruit and honey around some of the higher intensity, moderate intensity workouts and things like that, I can feel much better during these workouts too. And, and I applaud that because that's kind of putting performance as the driver versus just trying to maintain a, a way of eating or a, a a lifestyle that isn't necessarily going to be optimal for that individual. And with that, we just got a lot lot more anecdotes and a lot more data points on how kind of people felt and how people have gone about this stuff and uh, in the way of going. So the way I like to talk to people about this is like, if you're doing any sort of training in which performance is your goal and you're noticing you're losing that last gear, or you feel like a little flat on some of your workouts. or you notice your performance is dipping, but a lot of your other stuff is feeling great. You're in this situation where it's like, you don't necessarily want to go back to what you're doing before, because that led you to ultimately wanting to change in the first place. But you sort of want to have the best of both worlds to some degree, where you also have that same performance output that you maybe had on your previous way of eating. And this is where I think like, this really shines because it allows you to have a situation where you don't necessarily even need to limit your carbohydrates with this. You can always up or down, regulate the amount of fruit and honey you consume alongside the animal products. It, and and this, I would be, I would advocate would be more periodized based on what you're currently doing. If you take me, for example, in my off season, I'm quite low in carbohydrate, sometimes strict ketogenic. And then when I'm in my peak training phases, when volume and intensity is relatively high and I might be putting in 20 plus hours a week worth of training, you know, that's where I am going to adjust not only my overall energy intake, but everything, macronutrient for the most part, protein, may be the least, just because that one stays a little more stable uh, throughout the course of the year. But fats and carbohydrates both elevate during higher energy output times a year And with that comes a higher gram total of carbohydrate to make up for the extra energy that I'm putting out on those particular training days. So this would be some, a scenario where I think you just maybe would lean on fruit and honey a little more heavily when you're around those type of training sessions and and doing that. The one thing I find really interesting about this, especially when we get into the carnivore plus fruit and honey versus strict carnivore is you do get these athletes and I believe like Sean Baker would be a great example of this. And he's talked about this plenty of times because he's one who, uh, mostly just avoids fruit and honey and stays strictly with the animal-based products. He's doing incredibly high intensity workouts. So my, my theory has always been that since his workouts are so high intensity, the limiting factor, isn't his muscle glycogen. The limiting factor for him is going to be just The relative volume that any individual can tolerate at that high of an intensity. So there's only so much of that he can do on a given day, which means it's going to put kind of a cap on how much of a dent he's going to be able to make in his muscle glycogen. On top of that, Sean's eating like five to six pounds of meat per day. So even when he gets really fatty cuts of meat, he's looking at a pretty big amount of protein intake over the course of that day. So if we're looking at five to six pounds of meat, I bet Sean is hitting three, 400 grams of protein, even for someone who's his size, six foot five, roughly 250 pounds. A good chunk of that is going to probably get converted into muscle glycogen at a slower rate, albeit, but given his lifestyle, he may have that window of time to do that versus someone like me who I might do a much longer training session at a lower intensity, But then be be out doing another one within five or six hours. And then again, the next morning, and it's just like a lot shorter window between those sessions and a lot higher volume. And then if I start bleeding into moderate intensity and even some higher intensity stuff during certain phases of the year, I'm just in a situation where that process of protein and fat conversion into muscle glycogen isn't going to be fast enough. And I'm going to have that scenario of that downward sloping staircase. So if you have that scenario happening, let's say you're following a pretty strict carnivore diet. And you notice I feel great for like two or three days and then I just tank and then I take a couple days off and I feel good again. And then I have a few good days and I tank again. You just have this kind of roller coaster like that. That's just a, that's a pretty good sign in my opinion, that you're just not quite defending your muscle glycogen fast enough in order to maintain the lifestyle you're trying to lead. And that is where I would start really considering introducing that fruit and honey variable to this way of eating as being something that would likely be positive for you. If you can tolerate those foods and uh, see if you can kind of increase the amount of uh, output you're able to do in your workouts and still feel good. Like you are when you're following the way of eating that you found works best for you. All right. I can appreciate, there's probably like follow questions with this topic. So feel free to send them over if I missed on something, or if you want me to dive a little deeper into any other elements of that. Hey folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by my friends at Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is my go-to multivitamin. I take it every morning on an empty stomach in eight ounces of water. Reason being is it has 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. Lots of people take some kind of multivitamin, but it is important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. AG1 is a small micro habit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take great care of yourself. Your subscription will also come with a year's supply of vitamin D. It's a simple little tincture you just put two drops in. I drop it in with my scoop of athletic greens each morning adding to the value athletic greens with every purchase will donate to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in need including no kid hungry here in the us all right so if you want to check out athletic greens i'll make it easy for you athletic greens is going to give you one free year supply of immune supporting vitamin d and five free travel packs with your first purchase All you have to do is visit visit athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All HPO podcast sponsors can also be found with links and discount codes at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Also supporting this episode are my friends at Ice Barrel. Ice Barrel brings high quality cold water immersion right to your doorstep. So if you're looking to experience the benefits of cold water immersion, Ice Barrel will ship you one of their units, which can just be filled with water and have ice added to it for a quick, convenient, space efficient option to get cold water immersion as often as you want it. I first got interested in cold water immersion when I decided to bite the bullet and start taking some cold showers. One thing I recognized was my mood and energy levels right after seemed to peak, kind of like a shot of caffeine or a cup of coffee. So I started including cold water immersion into my routine more consistently. With Ice Barrel, I'm getting in there almost every day. I will sometimes avoid it after really big training sessions when I want the recovery phase to really kick in. But one of my go-to strategies is if I have big workouts in close proximity after the first one, I'll oftentimes spend a little extra time in that ice barrel, letting everything kind of settle down a bit. So if you're interested in taking the plunge and getting into some cold water immersion, my friends at Ice Barrel are going to offer you $125 off your purchase with the promo code HPO, just head to icebarrel.com forward slash HPO. That's I-C-E-B-A-R-R-E-L.com forward slash HPO. Like all Human Performance Outliers podcast sponsors, you can find details and links on the sponsor landing page, zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Uh, the last question that came in is keto for two months and endurance is suffering, what should I do? This is not an uncommon scenario that I see. Uh, It can happen for a variety of reasons. And some of those are like adjustable within the framework of a ketogenic diet. Some of them I find are adjustable by kind of transitioning away from what we would define as a ketogenic diet under normal circumstances, and then looking at it as what is an appropriate ketogenic framework, or I guess we should probably start calling it low carb at this point, just so we don't confuse people that would work better for your lifestyle than perhaps a strict ketogenic diet? Uh, and then there's also just going to be some groups of people who likely are going to just do a little better at a, on a moderate to high carbohydrate diet, in which case that person may find that identifying the foods within that macronutrient profile that works well from them, both digestively and energy levels and things like that is going to be their move. So I like to start out with this one by just looking at kind of like relatively what was going on. So if the person's like, yeah, I was strict keto for two months and I was in the middle of my training session season buildup and things are just starting to tank on me. I would see this somewhat as a red flag because you're sort of asking your body to handle like the increase in stressors from a dietary shift and what's going to come along for the ride as your body kind of reworks its machinery in terms of prioritizing fat as a fuel source in greater amounts than it would have otherwise when you're following a moderate to high carbohydrate diet, but you're also throwing all the workouts and stress from that sort of thing at it at the same time. And it just kind of like overruns what your body's able to kind of uh, account for. And, uh, that's why usually when I have folks who want to kind of play around with a strict ketogenic diet, I'll tell them to, to consider if possible, trying it during their off season. First, that gives you a little bit more of an on-ramp where you're not asking your body to go through rigorous training sessions. You might be active, but it's going to be pretty, pretty, uh, low key in terms of structure and, and what you feel like you have to do versus you know, in season training, where you have specific sets of workouts that you're going to try to execute in order to be ready for your race. And usually that helps quite a bit in kind of getting through that transition phase where your body is sort of kind of flipping that switch to uh, increasing its fat oxidation rates and being in a position where now you can reliably count on that energy source for, you know, at least lower intensity type workouts and movements. And if, if that's done, then I would start to look at like, well, where are some other potential mistakes within this framework? And a big one I see a lot is electrolytes. So if someone's on a strict ketogenic diet and they're coming from a moderate high carbohydrate diet, they have a pretty large reduction in their carbohydrate intake. And the nature of that is not just a reduction in carbohydrates, but what comes along for the ride, there is a reduction in the amount of water retention your body is going to, is going to have. So part of the benefit of a carbohydrate is it does help with like water retention in a good way, not like edema. It's going to be like water retention, uh, in your muscles in areas where you want it to stay hydrated, have higher blood volume levels and things like that. So when you remove that carbohydrate, you sort of remove a piece to that puzzle that would help you. That's why you sometimes see when people switch to a strict ketogenic diet or even just a carbohydrate restricting diet compared to what they were doing before, they'll see like a fairly immediate drop in water weight or weight in general. And a lot of that is water weight. So if you notice that, if you like to switch to a strict ketogenic diet and just lose like three or four pounds almost immediately, that might be a sign that you're gonna see some some issues when it comes to hydration and things like that. So the nice thing is there is a carb free, uh, a carb free way to kind of a counteract that a bit. And that's electrolytes. So sodium and electrolytes also will help your body retain higher amounts of fluid. So when you reduce those carbohydrates, increasing your electrolytes or your sodium content is going to be a step that might kind of help bring those energy levels back to a degree if someone's still struggling here, another thing we'll probably look at in tandem with the electrolyte side of things is what is their actual intake look like? So one, one other scenario that pops up a lot of times with low-carb ketogenic diets, and this can either be a win or a loss, depending on who you are and what your goals actually are, is you tend to find that you don't get as many cravings and hunger pangs when your body starts adapting. So you may not feel hungry, even though you are chronically under eating. So we put this on top of a lifestyle where you're doing a fair bit of training and endurance running at times, especially in the heat can actually be an appetite suppressant. And people don't always think of it that way. They think, oh, if I go for a run, I'm going to be ravenous. And that might be the case uh, at a certain point in time, but it can also blunt your appetite. So if you're coupling that with a relative higher satiation from having a ketogenic style diet. If you happen to be a person where that effect occurs, you might just find yourself kind of comfortably from a hunger standpoint, navigating a caloric deficit for extended periods of time, which is going to be a performance reducer. So if you notice, like, let's say for example, you're a 150 pound man and you're doing, you know, anywhere in the neighborhood to 60 to 90 minutes worth of endurance training per day you're moving from probably roughly a 2000 calorie output on a day where you don't do any exercise to upwards to 3000. So if you're continuing to eat, say 2000 calories on a ketogenic diet, you don't have weight to lose. And your output is closer to 3000 calories. You're going to see lethargy and a performance dip. Eventually, uh, your body's going to start to get very stingy with how it allows you to perform when you start getting down to those very low body fat percentages. So these are things that you see oftentimes in both moderate and high carbohydrate athletes as well. I just think ketogenic low carb athletes are maybe a little more prone to this at times because of the, uh, the increased satiation that you might get, or the lower hunger pangs that you might get with this. So definitely check that too. If your electrolytes check out, and if your fuel and your energy intake checks out, the next step is to adjust where you're actually at from a carbohydrate intake. So a lot of people who take on a ketogenic diet and have an endurance component will sometimes still focus on like the literature of the definition of what a strict ketogenic diet might look like. And they're oftentimes gonna be in a framework where they're hitting 50 grams of carbohydrate or less per day. So this actually kind of runs parallel with the question of carnivore plus fruit and honey versus carnivore where you have such a low level of carbohydrate intake if your training demand is tapping into your muscle glycogen at a high enough rate even with your higher fat oxidation rates you're going to have this downward descending staircase type thing happening with your muscle glycogen to where when you hit a specific point your body is going to start to get very resistant and you doing activities that are going to further tap into that so this is kind of just another example of your, your process of converting fats and proteins into muscle glycogen isn't happening at a quick enough rate in which your lifestyle is demanding it to. So really the way around that, if you want to continue that lifestyle at that level of performance is to speed up the process in which your body restocks muscle glycogen and technically liver glycogen as well. So This is going to come with just a little bit more carbohydrate. So the good news, if you like low carbohydrate keto styles of eating, and that's worked well for you for other areas of life. And it's just this performance piece that's missing is you don't have to necessarily go all the way back to moderate high carbohydrate to do this. So you're sort of operating from a different platform or different framework than what you were before, because after eight weeks of strict ketogenic dieting, you're likely going to have quite a bit higher fat oxidation rates throughout the intensity spectrum. So with that, you get the advantage of not needing as much carbohydrate to defend that carbohydrate side of the equation when you're, when you're going through these training workouts. So the way I want people to start thinking about this is don't think about I'm burning fat or I'm burning sugar. Think about, I'm burning a combination of both. And the question is what are your ratios and what are your ratios at the intensities that you're trying to hit? And then what is the actual volume of that intensity that you're asking for yourself? So let's say, for example, you're doing workouts that are high enough in intensity where you are quite fat adapted. So you're, you're, you're still like pretty far along on the intensity spectrum, but you're doing like a 50, 50 split of carbs to fat due to the increased intensity of that specific workout. You could, if you're able to do that workout long enough and do it frequently enough, you're going to still be tapping into your muscle glycogen at a fast enough rate where you might find yourself in this situation and feel like you're kind of suffering on the endurance side of things. Or a lot of things other people will sometimes say is I feel pretty good when I'm out there just kind of running what you call my all day pace or working out at a low enough intensity where you feel like you could just do it for hours. But when you go past that, you start noticing like that gear is just not there. Uh, that's usually where I tell folks to start thinking of it through the framework of your lifestyle and target a good starting point. I usually target with my coaching clients is we'll move that window up to hundred to 150 grams of carbohydrate per day versus the 50 grams or less. And that's just accounting for the lifestyle, the increase in energy output, the increased in intensity. In that particular lifestyle is just going to shift that window over. So, if you're, uh, I, I usually like to recommend kind of placing the majority of that carbohydrate around the workouts that you're trying to target. And don't get too hung up on being precise every day exactly the same. You can definitely move things around or borrow from days, is the way I like to put it, when you have a varied training schedule. So, you might have a situation where you have, say, Tuesday, you have a really big workout, but then Wednesday, you have a rest day. So it's okay to say, if I'm going to try to average 100 or 150 grams of carbohydrate per day, to skew some of that rest day, Wednesday's carbohydrate quantity over towards the day where you're doing the bigger workout so that you have that 100 to 150 gram average over those two days. But rather than it being the exact same number on each of those days, you have something maybe closer to two to 250 grams on that bigger day, and then something closer to 50 grams on that second day where you're just resting and recovering. So these are just some things to kind of consider when you're doing that. I've had, you know, what I like to do with with my coaching clients is uh if they're already following a low-carb ketogenic style diet and they're kind of having this situation and they're very uh, committed to sticking with that way of eating, at least to some shape or form is we'll just introduce a little more carbohydrate on top of their strict ketogenic diet and kind of find that spot where they start to feel like they're hitting their workouts and their performance is kind of getting back on track. And we just find a kind of an individual framework for them in terms of what is going to be a good target for them. And you can kind of do this during different phases of the year. This is essentially what I spent probably the first year and a half to two years of low carb kind of adjusting for and taking notes and personalizing was what do i need during off season what do i need during base foundational building what do i need when i'm doing short and long interval sessions in that phase of the year and then what do i need when i'm doing kind of long run development or race pace intensity targets and things like that and you know it just took a few seasons to kind of really work out what was going to work well for me or how i felt good and still hit performance or improve performance from what I've seen historically in the data from, from workouts and things like that. So these are all things that are worth considering when you're kind of doing that. And I think when you use performance as your guide, regardless of whether you're able to stay quite low carb, or if you're going to be a little more periodized, or, you know, maybe you walk yourself all the way back up to moderate carb and just identify the foods within that framework that work for you. I think these are all wins and they just put options on the table for people to consider as they're going about this stuff and find out what is going to work for them at the individual level. All right, folks, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, there are a variety of ways in which you can do so. One is through the show's Patreon page. With a Patreon subscription, you will get access to early release audio episodes as well as ad-free audio episodes. So if you want to get right to the chase and access interviews and solo podcasts early, heading to the show Patreon page and signing up there is a great option. You can find details for that on the show landing page, which is zackbitter.com forward slash HPO. Other ways to support the shows include one-time donations, which can also be accessed at the show landing page, zackbitter.com forward slash HPO, or by supporting one of the show sponsors, which all links and details can be found on the sponsor landing page, zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Thank you for tuning in for this episode. Until next time, this is the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Yeah. Alright folks, if you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think.